the 18th century, Mr. Edmund Burke was living in London, living in England. He was a part of Parliament, part of the House of Lords, and he was pro-American Revolution. He was not against the colonists, although later on he was against the French Revolution uh, for obvious reasons. But he was a statesman, and people looked to him in England for advice and for uh, his words. And there's several uh, words and phrases that are used of him throughout history. And I chose this one because it goes with our lesson and is uh, attributed to him. And I think it's a very true statement. Notice what he says. He says, Very seldom does a man take one giant step from a life of virtue and goodness into a life of vice and corruption. Usually, he begins his journey into evil by taking little steps into the shaded areas, areas tinted and colored just a bit, almost unnoticed by those around him until one day, hardly aware that he has made the journey, he finds himself firmly entangled in a life of vice and corruption. Normally, and I think it's a good rule of thumb, we don't wake up one morning and think, I think I'll murder today. I think I'll go and rob a bank today. I think I'll just lie and steal. I don't think we get up and we do that. It's usually in increments. We think about it. It enters our mind. It may leave our mind, but slowly, gradually, and surely, we go from what is right into a life of what is wrong. But what about in the spiritual realm? Can we see that happening also? Do we not see the same thing in the Bible, and I say we do. I think it does bear out that way, at least sometimes in God's Word, through certain characters and certain people that we read about. One from First Samuel is King Saul. You think about King Saul, and we know the story about the Israelites wanting a king, and God was upset, and Samuel was upset. But he chooses Saul, and it starts out good. He felt he was not worthy to even be king from the tribe he was from, the smallest and all that. He didn't feel worthy of that, but he had great potential. He was very humble. He felt he wasn't worthy of being the king of God's people. He even hid himself at his coronation, if you will. But he showed good leadership abilities, great qualities at the beginning. For example, with Jabesh Gilead, when he took on their cause, and he basically saved them. But then later on... After he saved them, he showed his great leadership ability. He had some people who were saying he shouldn't be king. And some of his followers, Saul's followers, said, let's kill him. Let's take him out. And Saul said, no, we're not going to do that. The Lord gave us this victory. So he obviously loved the Lord. So he had this great, great beginning to his reign as king of a united Israel. But as we know, things begin to go awry. He really became a great disappointment in the end. Saul had offered an unauthorized sacrifice, fearing an attack from the Philistines, so he took it upon himself to make an offering when he should not have done that. He gave a foolish oath that his soldiers were not to eat until the Philistines were defeated. Jonathan did. He was going to take his own son's life. He went from someone who was very humble to someone who was very prideful, and pride was beginning to eat him up. His leadership began to be suspect. Matter of fact, his soldiers, his followers, saved his son Jonathan. They turned their back on the king, so to speak, and saved his son. And also, he lost the love 
for the Lord. He had spared King Agag of the Amalekites, who God said utterly destroy, and he saved the King Agag, all the best of the spoil, and he fell. He fell so far, and God would not talk to him anymore. He went to a witch. He went to a, 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 a soothsayer, a fortune teller, if you will, trying to get advice. That's how bad he had fallen. This great promise of a king, tall, handsome, loving God, humble, and turns into this. It's quite a change over a 40-year period. But again, we can look at this and remember what Mr. Burke said in his statement, and we see that. I don't think it was just that Saul woke up one day and he decided, I'm going to go against God. It was a gradual thing. The humility began to wane and the pride began to take its place. The love that he had began to wane and began to leave him. As Mr. Burke put it, again, it's not this giant leap stating, I'm just going to sin today. I'm going to, I'm going to go against God today. It's gradual to me. And that's not what we need to fear. It's a giant leap. It's the little bitty steps and the little bitty steps where gradually, yet eventually, we leave God and we leave His love. Could this happen to us? Of course it could. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at a church tonight where it did happen. We're going to look at the church of Ephesus as we read about in Revelations chapter 2 and read about how they started out good. Matter of fact, Jesus gives them a great commendation, but something was amiss. Something was awry at that church. So we're going to look at Ephesus 40 years later. Tony's done a great job, and I really I enjoyed the study of the Ephesian letter that we had each Sunday morning. It was a great study. I appreciate Tony for that. But now let's look at the church. Let's look at some of the things in that letter before we move on. What did we learn? We learn that we are blessed beyond measure. Matter of fact, we're blessed through Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing that we have comes through the Christ. We learn that we've been given a gift. God has given us something free. Well, not free. It's free to us, but it cost Him something, didn't it? It cost Him His Son. It cost Him His Son on the cross. But God extends His grace to us. And if we will take hold of that grace by faith, we can be saved also. We learn that we were not part of the heritage of the Israelites, that Christ was not in our world. God was not in our world. We had no hope outside of the Israelite race, but through Christ's blood, we now do have that hope. We can have a relationship with the Father. We learn Jesus broke down barriers. Jesus broke down walls between us and the Father and between us and our fellow man. We learn that Jesus is the foundation of it all. He is the chief cornerstone. We look to Him. He said all authority had been given to Him. And that's who we look for, look to. We learn that there's no mysteries anymore. Everything has been laid out on the table. We can see it. We can be saved. Everybody can be saved. There's no more mysteries. There's no hidden agenda. We learn we can how to walk in unity. We learn how to walk as a new person, as a new man. We learn how to walk in love. We learn how to walk in the light. 
We learned how to walk in wisdom. All these things the Ephesian letter talked about. We understood and read about and studied about how husbands and wives should treat each other and love each other. How children should obey their parents. How parents should treat and love their children. How we might, uh, our employees, employers should look out for each other. We learned that just as we try to equip our army, our military men and women in this country to win, God has done the same thing for us. He has provided the armor to where we can have the victory. Because it's already been won. We just got to fight the battles and keep going. And he's provided everything for us to have the means of victory. So as Paul thinks about this church at Ephesus, he is so thankful. He says, I, I do not cease to thank God for you. Why? Because their faith in Jesus and their love for everybody. Could he write that about us? Could what Jesus tells them 40 years later might he say about us? So let's do this. Let's look at this. Let's fast forward approximately 40 years later and see how's the church in Ephesus doing. As he writes to them in this letter, they're a beacon of light. They're doing good. But what about 40 years later as we go into the Revelation letter? So let's look. Ephesus 40 years later. Again, we spent several weeks looking at a letter Paul wrote to Ephesus. We learned all these things. But let's now look at the good from Revelation chapter 2. Notice verse 2 again. Verse 2. Jesus states, makes this statement, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, or your perseverance. They were a working church. They were a hard-working church. They were not complacent in what they were doing. They worked. What were they doing? We're not told. But were they having Bible studies? Were they introducing Jesus to pagan worshipers in the city of Ephesus for the first time maybe? Were they being a positive light? A positive, or bringing a positive Christian influence into the community in Ephesus? We're not, we're not told. All we were told is Jesus said, I know your work and I know you are persevering in a place that was going to be hard to persevere. A small church in a large city where it's all pagan worship. And they're persevering through this. But they're a working church, Jesus said. But also look at verse 2 also. They're not a part of it. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. They were a right teaching church. They taught the truth. Regardless of what may be happening to them, they persevered through it and they taught the truth. They were a right teaching church. There was no toleration of sin at the church of God at Ephesus. They practiced, I'm assuming, church discipline as it should be done. The lines of right and wrong at the church at Ephesus was not blurred. They were a right teaching church. But notice also in verse 6, there was something else. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They were a doctrinally sound church. The Nicolaitans were thought, from the best of my studies, to be some type of cult trying to combine Christianity with the pagan worship in their city, possibly the Temple of Diana 
And they were trying to combine all that, but the Lord's church at Ephesus would not have any part in that. So we look at this church as what Jesus is stating. They were a hard-working church. They were a right-teaching church. They were doctrinally sound. However, we know something was not quite right as we read on in this, in this, in this statement, in this text. Something wasn't right. So we look at Ephesus 40 years later from the time that Paul wrote the Ephesian letter to a few years later. And we look at the bad. And you think again, a hard-working church, teaching the truth, doctrinally sound, yet Jesus says, I have something against you. You have forsaken your first love. Forsaken your first love. In verse 4. What happened? What happened here? Again, I'm prone to believe that this didn't happen overnight, but it was a gradual change that happened over these 40 years, and they probably didn't even know what was happening. And that can't happen. We're not told, but maybe people who used to be convicted by God's Word preached, had your toe stepped on, maybe didn't listen anymore. Maybe Christians stopped being excited to come here and assemble together, to sing together, to pray together, to worship together. Maybe Christians who at one time were links in a chain to be influenced to people outside their walls just intentionally stopped doing that. Maybe these maybe they stopped praying. Maybe they stopped studying. We're not told, but all we know is we don't have all the answers, but nevertheless, after about 40 years, this hardworking, right-teaching, doctrinally sound church had the ire of Jesus come down upon them saying, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You've forsaken your first love. So let's think about this. Let's ask the question. What is first love? How would you describe that to somebody? I think we know it sometimes. You know, I've... I've, um, The first time I saw Taryn and Emma... First love. All right? First time Charlotte saw me. First love. Trust me, that's the opposite. You know, I think you know that. But, you know, first love. We see things, you know, first time, you know, first time I heard the band Rush. Oh, that's it. That's it. I don't need any more music. That's it. First love. What we fall in love for the first time. But you know, that's not the question we need to ask, is it? It's not necessarily what is first love. What is first love in God's eyes? What is it? Can we describe that? We can try. What is love? What is first love in God's eyes? First love in God's eyes is that immediate love you had that brought you to Jesus in the first place. And we forget that sometimes, don't we? That immediate response, like, I I, I get it. Oh, I understand now. The love that He had for me, and I need to give it back. It's that first love that brought you to God to begin with. First love in God's eyes, it was that moment hit you in the head, that reality of what the cross really is, what it really is. Is our Savior nailed to that cross because of me and because of you. And the reality of that, 
First love in God's eyes is when you realize His blood was shed because I'm a sinner. His blood was shed because I spit in His face. His blood was shed because I put a crown of thorns on His head. I put the spikes in His, in his hands and His feet, the spear in His side. He shed His blood because of that. Or it might be first love in God's eyes when we worship. When, we, when it used to be the time when you would take the Lord's Supper, you'd get that tray, and you just get emotional. Understanding what that means when we did that this morning. A partaking of that unleavened bread. A, a partaking of that cup filled with the fruit of the vine. That's first love in God's eyes. Here's a good case study, I think. To look at the Apostle Paul. He's a, case, a good case study for a lot of things, I know. But let's look at the Apostle Paul. When we think about a case study in him and looking at him, he recognized some things. He recognized that he needed God. He recognized just what he owed God. Matter of fact, notice some statements that he makes. He stated, he told Timothy, the young preacher, this is a faithful saint and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And notice what Paul states. I'm the chief of the sinners. I'm the biggest of them all. He makes another statement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That haunted him sometimes. Paul was always aware of his current status and what he had been in the past. He was always aware of that. He recognized that he owed God everything for his grace and for his love. But something else that Paul stated or understood. He owed God everything, and he recognized that moved him, or it was a recognition that moved him to act. He understood. He got it. He owes God everything. So now he needs to get out and do some things for the Lord. He once told the Romans this. I am a debtor, both to Jews and to barbarians, wise and unwise. He was a debtor. He was indebted to God because of God's grace and love and salvation. But he also felt indebted to his fellow man, whether it was his countrymen, whether it was Gentiles, whether it was kings, whether it was slaves. It didn't matter to Paul. If somebody needed to hear the gospel, he felt indebted to tell them. He had received grace. Why should he keep it a secret? We receive grace. Why should we keep it a secret? A recognition of just what he owed God, a recognition that moved him to act. But how do you lose first love in the first place? What happens there? How does that happen? I want to talk about a couple of things that, that might be a suggestion anyway. The love grows cold. The fall retreat, not the fall retreat, the fall... Um, um, what are we doing in the fall in October at Dale's Cat? At, uh, what do we call it? I'm dying up here. Somebody help me. Festival. The fall festival. All right, at Dale's uh, farm. And we build the big bonfires in the fires. And it's interesting to watch it sometimes. The fire's going real big. And then you'll see one little log or twig or whatever fall off from the rest of the fire. And it's still red. It's still orange. And the more you watch it, it just dies down and it loses its color and loses its color, smokes a little bit, and just sort of seems to die right there. Jesus said this. 
And because the lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. The fire will go out. The ember will go out. And because of all kinds of things, lawlessness, wickedness, sins that easily beset us can come into our lives. Again, I don't think it's a, a giant leap, one giant step, and it happens. It's a gradual thing, but it can happen. And the love that we once had for the Lord can be turned off, can grow cold. But also there's the love, sometimes it's just not nourished. The story told of two people, they meet and fall in love. Hey, here we go. They spend every precious moment together. When they're apart, they're still thinking about each other. I see some of these kids smiling. Their love just seems to grow and seems to blossom. They marry eventually. All right, they get married. They build this bond of love around each other, with themselves, around themselves, and they state, oh, life is just going to be so wonderful. And then they go to their jobs. And then there's appointments to be met. And then kids come along. Then a bill, or maybe two bills, are past due. Then the fusses start over things. You don't remember what the fusses were about in the first place. And all these games be things begin to pull up at each those two. Begins to nag at them, pull at them. So the man's become so overwhelming that that love relationship begins to suffer. Then they're sitting at dinner table, and the husband's looking over at the wife, and the wife's looking over at the husband. They're eating. It's like, who are you? You're a str I don't even know who you are anymore. Thinking this in their minds. So what happens is the love has grown cold. It's starving. It's not been nourished. It's not been fed. And I think that can happen sometimes. This must be what happened at Ephesus. At least that might be a suggestion anyway. This was a hardworking, right teaching, doctrinally sound people in church, but they stopped nurturing their love for the Lord. And eventually that love got pushed to the background and it wasn't being fed. It wasn't being, it, it was forsaken. And in working and teaching and staying, and staying sound, I believe they probably were still going out in the community and doing things doctrinally right, teaching and evangelizing, loving their neighbor as themselves, but that's the second commandment. What did Jesus say the first one was? The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. This is the first commandment. We need to love each other. We need to love people outside. We don't even know. We need to be that kind of people. But Jesus said the first thing you do is get your heart right with the Lord. Love God first, and everything else will fall into place. That was the first commandment. So we look now at, ask this question. How do you regain that first love? We've talked about what is first love in God's eyes. Now let's talk about how do you regain first love. Look at verse 5 again. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works. So notice this. Okay, First love regained. How can we do it? Remember. Go back and think about 
What was it like? What was it like when you first became a Christian? I know I brought this up from this pulpit before, but I think it bears repeating. Can you remember? I know this might be hard for some of you, but think back. Can you really remember what it was like? The joy you had, understanding that you, I'm saved. Jesus has saved me from my sin, and and, the, and how enthused you were, excited. First became, can you remember that? Can you remember the first time you had to recommit your life to the Lord? We all have to do that. I don't care if you walk this aisle or not. We all have to do that from time to time. Do you remember the joy, the enthusiasm, the excitement you had for the things of God? Do you remember how you saw God's hand in every circumstance in your life? Do you remember the thankfulness you felt for His grace and His love and His salvation? That might be something we need to do. Jesus is saying, okay, if you've lost your first love, go back and think about why did you have that first love in the first place? Remember why. Then he says, repent. Repentance. Understanding I'm a sinner. Understanding sin is in my life. Understanding sin separates me from God. And once I get that realization... And it's hard sometimes, I know, but once I have that realization... It's like it's, you're, you, can, you, can have, you can find freedom. And I can realize, okay, sin's in my life, but I've got hope. There's something I can do about it. I can have a penitent heart, and I can turn from my ways and remember that first love and turn around. So we can repent for several things. You have to, you have to ask yourself what it might be. It might be for not spending time with God as you should. It might be for not coming to services like you should. It might be for not using your time, your talents, your resources, as you should for the Lord. Maybe it's not studying God's Word as you should. Maybe it's not praying like you should. But as long as we're alive and we're here and Jesus doesn't come back, we have the opportunity to repent. And Jesus tells him, remember, from the height with which you've fallen, repent, and I'll even give you a do-over. Do the first works. Recapture the love by allowing worship to become important to you again. Recapture the love by talking to God multiple times every day. Recapture the love by studying God's Word every day. Recapture the love by allowing yourself and myself to be teachable again. We look at Ephesus 40 years later, and we look at that verse 7, and the last thing Jesus tells this church. It might sound... Here's a hard-working, right-teaching, doctrinally sound church who was told, you've forsaken the first love, but. If, you have, if you'll listen to me, Jesus is saying, if you'll listen to me, if you overcome, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. If you will listen to me, remember, <coughs> repent, and do the first works, I'll give you eternal life, i.e. the tree of life in heaven, the paradise of God. You can have it all. But Jesus is saying, you have to follow me. So we look at Ephesus approximately 40 years later from the time that letter was written, and some things have changed. Again, I don't think it was a giant leap. I think it was a gradual thing, and things change. Doing right things, but not with love as the motivation. But now let's, take it a little more, let's make it a little more personal. That's Ephesus. 
What about us some 2,000 years later? Where do we stand individually, collectively, as a church? There's times we need to overcome. There's times we need to remember, oh yeah, I totally forgot the grace and love of Jesus. I need to repent. I need to turn from my ways and do right from this point on. I need to, I need to do over. And Jesus says, okay, do it. If you're willing to confess, if you're willing to repent, if you're willing to become a Christian, if you're willing to follow me, do it. Let's do it. But where do we stand tonight? So as we sing this song of encouragement, you know where you stand. You know if you need the Lord in your life. So if you do, come forward as we sing.